welcome to another inspirational message from Brave Church UK. Now then, we've been, uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. And uh, Sam has spoke for the last couple of weeks about uh, Ephesians and chapter 1. And I'm going to continue to talk about chapter 1 this week as well. Now, Sam was unpacking last week a little aspect of it, which is about how chapter 1 is a doxology. Okay, posh fancy word, basically meaning a hymn or a song. All right, and I'm going to continue this week with chapter 1, which the second part of that is the second doxology. Now, before I get too far into what I'm going to speak about this morning, I think it's really important just to go back to one thing that Sam was talking about last week. The doxology that he was talking about last week was a doxology, a song of praise. A song of praise. And we have been praising God this morning. We have been absolutely praising God this morning. But it's important to look at the context about it. All right, Paul is in prison when he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. He's in prison. He's in the Marmotine prison in Rome, all right, and it's not a nice prison, all right. We can hear the word prison these days, and you can think of all the prison dramas and stuff like that. You think of the TV screens and all those kinds of stuff, all right. But one Roman historian described it as a dungeon, and that probably puts it better than prison, a dungeon. It was dark, dank, and dirty, all right. There was literally a hole in the ground for the sewage that flowed underneath so the historian talked about it being a depressing place. It was literally a hideous and terrifying appearance was the place as well. So it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't a Netflix movie experience. You know, when you see the candle-lit prison cell where it's beautifully lit throughout with one candle. All right? It wasn't that kind of beautiful, pleasant experience. It was horrible. But into that context, Paul is singing a praise to God. And not only that, he's writing to the Ephesians an encouraging message of praise as well. And I think for us, some of us this morning, that could be just enough to ask the question, are we singing enough of praise in our lives? Now then, um, the one thing I want to go on to today is to talk about the second doxology. And the second doxology is basically where Paul is talking about a song of praise, but for thanksgiving and for prayer. So we've gone from praise to thanksgiving and into prayer. And there's a process there that I think is important for us to all grab hold of as well this morning. So let's just start with Ephesians 1 verse 15. And it says this, Thanksgiving and prayer for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now what a great opening statement that is. All right. There's no reprimand, there's no kind of suggestion because Paul's a figurehead and people look into him that he's saying like, well, if I were you, I would do this. It's none of that, it's just literally Paul simply encouraging them that even though he's stuck in a prison, the word of them doing great things is coming back to him. He's hearing because people are seeing the good and talking about it. And at the time, the Ephesians are probably thinking that what they're doing is going unnoticed because they're miles away in Ephesus. But Paul was letting them know that not only was their way of living right and visible, it was worthy to be talked about. It was worthy to be talked about. So, firstly, he hears about their faith, and then secondly, about their love for each other. 
two visible signs, two visible signs that showed Paul that the Ephesians were walking closely with God. See, faith is believing God's promises, trusting in his faithfulness, and relying on God's character and faithfulness to act. In the time of the Ephesians, in the time of persecution, because it was a time of persecution then, all right, it was also more than that. It was also about an allegiance, a loyalty to who were you grabbing hold of? And they were grabbing hold of Jesus. You know, faith just isn't theory. It wasn't just a thought process, a theoretical decision that happened in your brain. It was something that was immediately connected to how you live, to how you live. And that same allegiance brought out a heart response, an outpouring of love. Now, love in the Bible is not primarily an emotion. It's often a commitment to action. It's a purpose over preference. Now, I can say to my wife, Valda, I love her. And I do. And obviously that's good. <laughs> for, for the recording, she said, I better had. Um, but it's not, if that's the only way that I tell her that I love her, and that's it, then my marriage is a bit shallow. And frankly, it's going to struggle. But if I show her by my actions, as well as by my words, then Valda sees, feels, hears, experiences that she's loved. Now, one of the things that I really don't like to do, but I do, is I massage her feet. Okay? I massage her feet. Now, some of you sat there thinking, yeah, that's something you do like once every three or four weeks when she just nags you. No. Not in my house. <laughs> um, I sit on a sofa with a kind of footstool in front of me, so I sit that way. She sits across, so her feet often straight there. Okay? And I've got, after years and years of marriage, I've got used to the phrase, oh, just, she doesn't even need to say any more than that. I just know what's coming next, which is, oh, can you just, can you just do my feet for five minutes? Now, it's not just a kind of a, a nice thing to do for Valda. She really struggles with her feet. She's, her feet often feel like she's walking on glass and she really struggles with her feet. So it's also therapeutic as well. Now, I hate feet. <laughs> I really do hate feet, all right? I walk around with everything covered on uh, my feet-wise. Occasionally, like flip-flops, but even I don't like looking at my own feet. So never mind looking at someone else's feet. Never mind touching someone else's feet. But I do it. And why do I do it? Well, because... It helps her to know that I'm showing my willingness to sacrifice, to give of myself, to demonstrate how much I love her. Now, obviously, she does, and it does work both ways. Of course it is. So I'm not saying all women go home and insist your men massage your feet. All right, as an outward experience, say Simon says, because that's not necessarily right. But the problem is, often, we have this meaning of love as this kind of fluffy, red, heart-shaped sentiment. Something that you can even fall out of. But love is a commitment to act for the well-being of another person, ahead of your own well-being. Love is the mark, the key mark of a follower of Jesus. So the question for all of us is, are we marked? Are we marked? See, Paul is hearing about this commitment, this demonstration of Jesus through the believers in Ephesus. And now he can't actually stop thanking God and praying for them. And I love that Paul is showing us a powerful way of praying, a powerful way of praying. 
he is in fact showing us another side to prayer. And often we can get stuck in a rut with our prayer lives, if we're honest. We can kind of treat it almost as a time of request, uh, a list of needs, or a list of requirements. And um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for people. I am not saying that at all, so hear me here. All right, We shouldn't pray for problems, for illness, for people struggling. Of course we do. And as a church, we believe strongly that he answers prayer. And he answers through prayer. So on a Wednesday, midweek, staff always weekly, we get together and we pray for the prayer requests of the church. So if you've got prayer requests, messages, tell us. Fill in the prayer requests at the information point afterwards. So we do take that very, very seriously. But I believe Paul's showing the church today that we're missing out on one aspect. We're missing a trick. Paul tells the Ephesians that you are doing so well which is why I'm still praying for you. When was the last time you prayed for someone because they were doing so well? If we're truthful, we just don't do it that way, do we? We don't. It's not our normal default setting. And the Ephesians were already on fire. So Paul doesn't stay quiet or wipe them off his prayer list. Instead, he adds more fuel to the fire. We're called to be the same, not just to pray for people when they're struggling, but to pray for them when it's going well, to add fuel and to stoke the fire so that it keeps, keeps going. Prayer is always so important. And are we adding fuel to the fire? And with who and how are we doing that? You know, Paul goes on to say in verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. See, Paul's teaching us to keep asking. It's constant. And also look at Paul's attitude to God there. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father. It's not, dear God, a God of lists or God could you. There's a kind of a level of reverence of depth, of honor, and understanding. And Paul is showing the Ephesians the God he serves. And it's kind of as if Paul is cheering them on from the, uh, from the sidelines, knowing that the Ephesians, that the biggest way they can grow in their faith is not to have their circumstances met or even for provisions to be met, which could, in fact, be explained away. But Paul knows that they need their own revelation of who God is. It's not good enough just to know about God, but to know who God is, to know who God is. And Paul prays for them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And we need to look beyond our circumstances sometimes. We need to understand that the way to face life's difficulties isn't through the meeting of our earthly provisions, but by a greater knowledge of God himself. So that in the storms... We're not speaking to the waves crashing around us with a list of our needs and provisions, but that our perspective is totally different. That we understand God is bigger than the waves, but is also bigger than the storm itself. Now, just imagine for a moment you were facing some surgery this week. All right, just bear with me with this one. All right, imagine you're having surgery this week and you're down just pre-op. You're kind of on the table, if that's the word to use, but you're there and the surgeon comes out. It's a surgeon who's there in their 50s, say, 
and they're just talking to you before the operation and chatting to you and stuff like that, and you're like, just get on with it, just get on with it, please, let's just get this over with. But they start to talk to you about their university days. And they start to tell you about how, actually, they've never learned anything since being at university. That when they were at university, they learned all their skills about surgery, all that kind of stuff, and since then, they've never learned another thing. Would you be happy to be operated on by that person? Let's just have a show of hands. Would you be happy? Uh, <laughs> nobody. Of course you wouldn't. Absolutely, of course you would not. But the truth is no doctor, no surgeon thinks that they finish learning when they leave the classroom. They know that week by week, day by day, month by month, new techniques, new treatments are being discovered. And that if they wish to continue to be of service through, uh, for those in illness and for those in pain, that they must keep up. They must keep up. So what if our faith was based solely on your knowledge of who God was? Who God was to you 20 years ago? Who God was to you one year ago? I mean, life shouldn't be like that. That's what Paul's saying. The Christian life should be described as getting to know God better every day. And you know, a friendship which does not grow closer with the years tends to vanish with the years. And so it is with us and God. We need to be constantly praying Constantly in prayer, developing a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, the word Paul uses for wisdom is Sophia in the Greek. Now, Sophia is the wisdom, and I love this phrase, the deep things of God. I just love that phrase, deep things of God. So Paul is saying that this type of wisdom is not just head knowledge, but knowledge that is sifted down into the heart, which then in turn will affect how you live and how you navigate daily life. The ability to judge correctly and to follow the best course of action. The wisdom to apply revealed spiritual truths that you're learning week by week, daily, as you discover more about God. He prays that the church may be led deeper and deeper into the knowledge of God's eternal truths. See, the word revelation itself, apocalypse, from apu, meaning from, and calupto, meaning cover or conceal, the word conveys this idea of taking the lid off. It means to remove the cover, exposed to the open, to view that which was hidden. Now, maybe for somebody today, you need to take the lid off your faith to uncover, uncover that which was hidden. Verse 18 I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, you probably heard the phrase, there's more to it than meets the eye. I'm pretty sure you all have. Some things are obvious to our physical eyes, aren't they? But sometimes it takes more than our physical eyes to see a situation. If someone is crying, our eyes see the tears, but our heart sees that something is wrong. It's our heart that cares enough to enter into that situation and provide comfort. Paul's prayer is that they will have this deeper form of seeing. And when he speaks about having the eyes of your heart enlightened, Paul is praying for them to go even deeper, to see with both their eyes and their heart to help them to do this, he starts to pray that three things, three things will become known to them. So briefly, the first is the hope to which you are called. So hope is having a conviction 
that my present circumstances don't determine the meaning of my life. Don't determine the meaning of my life. The present state of your character doesn't. The present state of your struggles doesn't. When we understand that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, we know that we've entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That puts us in a place where we never need to lose hope. Never. You know, recently, I left my very comfortable, very well-paid, very good holidays, very good pension job in teaching to come and work at the staff here with the, work, uh, with the staff here at Brave. And um, the world would say I was mad, probably. Um, there were quite a few teachers at the school who said I was mad. They were the ones who didn't know me. And then the teachers that did know me said they were really pleased for me. Uh, but they weren't surprised, but they still thought I was mad. All right. Now, it's important to put a bit of context to this. You see, Sam never had any long discussions with me about it. We didn't pull apart a contract over emails and meetings. We didn't spend hours negotiating any aspect of the job. Sam, simply one night after a community meal on a Monday night, in the back kitchen, I remember it well, he was wearing black, all right? He had a 10-minute chat. He had a 10-minute chat, and he simply, simply told me to go away and pray. That was it, go away and pray. And that really was it. I had one more question about two weeks later, which was along the lines of, if you're in, I'm in. And that was it. The reason it was that simple, the reason it was that simple was simply this, calling. Calling. For me, I know very clearly I am called to build. To build his church. And in particular, to help Sam and Rachel so that they can work out their calling. To work out their calling. That a leading church. And it was that simple. And do you know what? It is still that simple. Life might be complicated. Your days might get complicated. But it's that simple. And Paul wanted the Ephesians and he wants us to know that nothing gives us, a, gives us a more secure and enduring hope in life than simply knowing that God has called us. That he has a specific calling for each and every one of you. Every one of you to fulfill. It says the hope of his calling. And it also has a perspective, if you like, on the future. You see, we believe that we have a glorious future of resurrection, eternal life, freedom from sin, and eternity with God. That is the hope to which we have been called and if we have the eyes of our heart enlightened, we will know deeply and firmly the hope to which we have been called. The second one is the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. Now, I remember having a conversation with my wife a few years ago. Uh, it was one of those weird conversations that I, I, I guess husbands and wives have, which is kind of like those odd, well, it's kind of like Mr. and Mrs. You know, the questions where they ask, if, if it was this, what would you do? to see if we know each other really well. And one of the questions was, right, if our house was on fire, what would you grab hold of first and take out the house? That was the question. Obviously, it was given each other and our kids. That, that's a non-starter, obviously. But what possession would you grab hold of? And my thought simply literally came to this book. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing now, thinking about that, because maybe I should have picked the Bible. But no, I didn't. <laughs> I picked my journal. All right? It's, it's kind of a, a travel-y kind of journal that I've got. It's... Um, for those who don't know me, I'm kind of an art teacher, past, all right, and an artist, that kind of stuff. So I do a bit of a visual diary. It's sketches, it's drawings, it's paintings, it's doodles, it's cutting and sticking things in. It's all very crafty, all right? But it's also got diary in it as well. It's got me writing and journaling and stuff like that. It's got all sorts in there. It's got my favorite holiday ever, besides my honeymoon. 
all right, is my trip to New Zealand. It's got that kind of stuff in it. It's got uh, holidays with my wife. It's got testimony. It's got all sorts. It's got beginnings. It's got experiences. It's got personal moments, all that kind of stuff. That means nothing to nobody, but it means everything to me. It might mean something to my wife because she can read that and know more about me. But for everybody else, it means nothing. It's just a journal. It's forgotten about. All right? It's just a journal. But it says this, Now riches of his glorious inheritance in his people can sound very bible if you like. And he's taking the words out of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy, where God calls the Israelites treasured possessions. And Paul's conviction that through Jesus, you fulfill this new family. And the Israelites should have been, but today we are. Now then, you are God's treasured possessions. That like my tatty, insignificant looking journal, it's the most treasured possession I have. And you may feel insignificant. You may feel beaten or even bruised, but God loves you with a passion. And he wants you to know that you are his most treasured possession. Paul also wanted the Ephesians uh, to know this and to know the greatness of God's inheritance in his people. You see, we usually think of only of our inheritance, all right? And in daily life, what are we going to get from that? But Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand that you are so precious to God, that you matter, that you are valued, that you are loved deeply, that you are treasure, that God even considers you his own inheritance. He is our inheritance and we are his. That's amazing. The third one, is his incomparably great power for us to believe, which the scripture continues by saying that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is evoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, that is an amazing picture of Jesus. His majesty, his authority over everything, his headship over the church, the dominion he has over the whole of creation. It's amazing. Now, recently, I was given a new phone. Um, someone had upgraded, and I was given theirs, and I was very, very thankful. Anybody who knows me knows that I have probably one of the smallest phones in the world. I have like an iPhone 5. It's like about that big. And I, to be fair, I loved it. I'm old school. I can fit it in my pocket. It's not like a, a laptop or an iPad that you can't fit. It, all right? It's old, but it works. It does the job. But recently, it started to lose its charge. I've got a charge connection, put it in. I've got to try and get the wires right because the wires weren't quite right. You've got to bend it and twist it so it just clicks, so it just starts to charge. But mainly, the problem is the battery. The battery is going. How many people, hands up, genuinely have had problems in the past or even now, with a battery in the phone. Come on, let's be honest. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. I'm not alone. Okay, pretty much everyone's putting their hands up for that one. Batteries are so, so annoying. So ridiculous. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But I've got used to this idea in this last couple of months of living kind of in this 20% charge world. All right, where you've literally just got 20%. Now, I am very, very organized. I like things to be right. So frankly, I freak out when it goes below 50%. So you might feel my pain where 20% is just my world crashing down on me. It really is. All right. But I found myself getting nervous with my phone. Nervous because it's limiting myself. 
I, I could put off emails. I don't necessarily get to listen to the whole of a podcast because it would just stop. And, and basically, I started to worry about every single action. I mean, you fuss, you cut back, you shrink back, you even, and I'm pretty much sure everyone said this at some point, warn people that my phone's about to die, I might just stop. All right? I know I've heard that a few times from our kids. All right? But the sad thing is many Christians can be living this way in their own lives. Their life is running off a limited power, and we haven't got a full charge we haven't got a full charge. And you start to worry about every single action. You fuss. You pull back on what you do. Why? Because you're running on empty. And are you this morning accessing God's power? Are you running on limited charge? Now, the word power can be deceiving because we tend to get the wrong idea of it. All right? In our culture, in our time in history, it's been affected how we see power. I mean, many people will see power, they'll think of politics, business. They will think about kind of the corrupting power. He's a very powerful man or woman and all that kind of stuff. Or quotes like, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Or we think of pop culture. We think of superheroes, Marvel comic messages about power, Hulk, smash, that kind of stuff. Or the most ridiculous one when you think about it, a metal glove with a load of jewels on it, and you click your finger and half the universe dies. Just think about that one for a moment. That sounds more ridiculous to say it out aloud. But still, that kind of power, that's the kind of power that we've kind of got used to, where basically it's the ability to do whatever we want. All right? The resources or the ability to do what you want. So our view of power can be tainted. Even Christians have misinterpreted this power. You can be a powerful person for Jesus. You can have influence, seize your destiny, underwrite your dreams. Now, that's fine for some, but for the rest of us, as normal people, Paul is very quickly to qualify the type of power. He wants to make sure we don't miss it, that we're not misguided or get the wrong idea. And it's a very specific power. And Paul says this, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And I'll leave it at that. That's the kind of power he's talking about. Now then, in 1982, one of my favorite films of my youth came out. And I'm showing my age here, and I'm revealing all to you. And, and I was, and I still am, a little bit of a science fiction geek, if I'm honest. All right? And if Mickey Mensa was here, he would be cheering me on at this point, because I know he is as well. All right? But Star Trek The Wrath of Khan was, for me almost like an Empire Strikes Back moment. All right, I've, I've, already, I've already isolated half the audience there. There's people looking at me going, you sad man. But still, all right, the Wrath of Khan, it was, uh, as, you know, as a young man growing up, a young man, as a boy growing up, it was one of those moments where at the end of the film, you're left, left going, no, no, I don't believe it. It's almost like Empire Strikes Back when he says, Luke, I am your father. It's that kind of same moment for me. And in the final scenes, the evil, vengeful Khan, the bad guy, was, the last, was having the last laugh. And he basically destroys himself. But in the same process, he kind of cuts out the engines of the Starship Enterprise, the ship with all the good guys in, basically, if you don't know anything about Star Trek. All right. And uh, basically, they're trapped. The engines are down. They're trapped. They're stuck. They can't get anywhere. And this planet that they're right next to is about to blow up. All right. It's called a... Uh, well, it's a Genesis planet, 
if I'm being really geeky. All right, there's a whole weapon that they're trying to stop, which is this missile which turns planets where it destroys it, but then it makes the planet reborn. It kind of gives it a genesis effect so they can repopulate planets so they can take a, like a, a moon and turn it into a breathable atmosphere. So it destroys it, but then recreates it. All right, but into that, okay, they're facing certain death. And then two main characters, Spock. Anybody heard of Spock? Yeah, okay, that's all right then. Okay, you've, some of you young ones have probably watched it and the new ones and think they're the original ones, but they're not. But there we go. So Spock selflessly goes down to engineering. All right, and he goes into this glass cabinet full of radiation. And he's just literally, he's going to walk in there and that's it. He's not coming back out again. He knows that's going to be the end for him. So he goes in. And then suddenly the counter's going counting down and they're running out of time. And suddenly the ship engines kick in and they fly off as you do in space, all right? They fly off to, the, you know, to be saved. And at that point, Captain Kirk's in the bridge and Spock uh, is still obviously, literally he's going through this death kind of phase in this glass cabinet. And then Captain Kirk hears Scotty come through on the tannoid. Captain, I can't do a Scottish accent, but <laughs> bear with me. Man, you now they could Scotty, if we were honest. <laughs> all right, Captain, you better come down here. <laughs> it's getting worse, isn't it? It's getting worse, is my accent. I can see people in the front row cringing already. But he says, you better get down here. And he just knows. Captain Kerr just knows. Right, okay. How come we've managed to survive? Because that shouldn't have happened. He gets down. And there's Spock. He's literally crumpled on the floor. He's about to die. And Spock literally turns around. And they're facing each other in this glass cabinet. And I'm really building it well. All right. And he literally tells him that he has always will, always has and always will be his friend. And then he talks about how the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And he even does that bit at the end with the hands. All right. And then he dies. He dies. Spock dies. And it's one of those moments where I'm like, I'm trying to be like a boy, like, you know, I'm not crying. And then like tears are kind of rolling down on one side. I'm like, I'm not crying. I'm not crying. But I'm inside. I'm like, no. But at the same time. You kind of know in the background, hold on, it's a Genesis planet. Ooh. And then the, the final scene is they send, they send his body off in a torpedo, and it lands on the planet, and you're kind of like, ooh, ooh, wonder what that leads to. And you're not really sure. You're not really sure. And you're left for a very disappointing third film to find out what actually happens. All right? But it's amazing how this film has so many parallels to our Christian faith. Stick with me. Stick with me. But Paul is talking about, in Ephesians, about a regeneration power. All right? Like in the film, he's talking about how each and every one of you can access this amazing resurrection power. And if the worship team want to come up. The power over death and sin. But, unlike the film, not just over the physical, but he has given us access to charge up on his Holy Spirit. To charge up on his resurrection power over death and sin, not just over our lives, but our daily lives. The power to change us, the power to help us overcome, the power to reverse death moments in my life and yours, the power to make things new. And that present state of my character isn't the end. That present state of my thoughts need not be the final word. That the present state of my experiences of this life isn't all there is. You see, it's an unselfish power. 
A power that gives up status and authority to absorb and to take the hit on behalf of others. After all, Jesus allowed the sin of others to crush him. It's the power to take the most tragic, sinful, and selfish human beings and through an encounter with Jesus, turn them into a living, life-giving being, recharged and continually helping others to find this resurrection power in their own lives. I suppose the question for us all today is are we accessing that power? Are we coming before God with hope of our calling, with the realization that we have an inheritance, that we are treasured possessions, and are we accessing that resurrection power to live a life full of the spirit of wisdom and revelation? That's the end of this week's podcast. We hope that it inspired you. For any more information, visit braidchurch.co.uk.